Uh, it's now my great pleasure to introduce our next speaker, Leo Hanian. Uh, Lee is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and a professor of economics and director of the Edinger Family Program in Macroeconomic Research at the University of California, Los Angeles. He's an associate director of the Center for Advanced Study in Economic Efficiency at Arizona State University and a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research, where he co-directs the research initiative entitled Macroeconomics Across Time and Space. He is also a fellow in the Society for the Advancement of Economic Theory. His research focuses on economic crises, economic growth, and the impact of public policy on the economy. He's an advisor to the Federal Reserve Banks of Minneapolis and St. Louis, has previously advised other Federal Reserve Banks, foreign central governments, and the National Science Foundation, and has testified to national and state, state legislative committees on economic policy. He's on the editorial boards of Econometrica and Macroeconomic Dynamics. He's a frequent media contributor and writes for the Wall Street Journal, Forbes, and Investors Business Daily. He previously served on the faculties of the University of Minnesota and Pennsylvania and is vice president of Security Pacific Bank. The title of his talk today is The Tarnishing of the Golden State, How to Get California Back on Track. Please join me in welcoming Leo Hanian. morning. It's, uh, as always, it's a great pleasure to join you and have the opportunity to share ideas about economic issues that are, that are confronting us. And, um, you know, before I get uh, started with my talk today, um, let me just share with you one story. Um, at Hoover, um, Tom's introduction makes it sound like I, I, I do a lot of things and I stay busy, and that's what I always tell my wife, who complains about uh, how little I do uh, at the house. But one thing I do for her <clears throat> is I make coffee for her every morning. And the other day I was making coffee, and I picked up the coffee beans, and I put them in the water canister in the coffee maker, and then I took the water and I poured it into the grinder for the coffee beans. And, uh, and she's a little bit of a neatnik, and so she starts screaming, saying, what, what are you doing? And then I realize there's water dripping on the floor, and there's, and there's you know, coffee beans in the water canister. And she said, I know what's going on. You're thinking about how the country's going down the drain again, aren't you? And, and I, said, uh, I, said, I said, busted, yes. that's uh, <laughs> um, So today I'll... Uh, I'll talk a little bit about our home state, California, and I'm going to put the presentation into three pieces. The first piece we'll talk about just the remarkably extraordinary growth that California achieved for much of the 20th century and how really good economic policies were so important behind that growth. And that was really the California that we knew for so many years. And then I'll talk about how policies changed in a very, very sharp way and how that policy change away from limited government and market-based economic policies has contributed to what I'll call the tarnishing of our golden state. And then the third piece we'll talk about what I think we need to do to get back on track and, and then politically how, how likely that might be and I think there's some, some good reasons for some hope there. So let me just start with you know, the California we had. Um, and perhaps the greatest economic success story of the 20th century was our state of California. In, in 1900, California was a tiny state, less than proportional share of population. Alabama had more population than California. Missouri had more. Kansas had more. Illinois was about five times as large as California. 
But then over the course of the 20th century, California became the largest state in the country and is now home to 12% of our population. And that simply couldn't have been possible without really good economic policies, state and local economic policies, year after year. And California delivered that. California governments at the state and local level delivered really good economic policies that were focused on what I'll call public investments. Investments in K through 12 education, colleges, water, transportation, and other government infrastructure. Now these investments weren't only important for the population base at that time, but because of the remarkable natural amenities that California offers and good economic policies, we had an enormous influx of talented people and resources into the state. After World War II, enormous numbers of skilled workers and some of the best companies in, you know, you name the industry, technology, aerospace, manufacturing, entertainment, energy, they all came. It reminds me of the old saying, okay, if you build it, they will come. Well, California built it and, you know, did they ever come? Just in the 30-year period between 1940 and 1970, our population grew from 7 million to 24 million. Just imagine that, 7 million to 24 million. And that simply could not have occurred without really productive and efficient government that provided infrastructure and state services that could support that population growth. Now, how did those policies come about? So, you know, more recently, you know, we all know what California is like now from a policy perspective. You know, it didn't used to be that way. So year after year, decade after decade of relatively good economic policies was made possible, in my opinion, because policymakers shared what I would call a relatively nonpartisan vision of growth and limited government. And there were really three pieces to this policy vision. The first was to identify those public investments that were critical to support the growing population, the continued economic success of California, and quality of life. The second part was a commitment to excellence in government investments and government-provided services. And the third was a real, and I mean a real sense of fiscal responsibility, not just lip service of fiscal responsibility, but a true respect for taxpayers and their tax dollars. In other words, California wasn't nearly as wealthy in 1960 and 1950 as we are today, and those tax dollars were dear, and government needed to make sure that taxpayers felt that they were getting good return for their tax dollars. Now, I think those three positions, those three principles of that growth vision that I think both political parties shared to a large extent uh, are nicely summarized in these quotes. And I'm gonna read them to you and then, and then I'll, I'll ask you, you know, guess which former California politician made these, made these statements. We must invest in infrastructure, colleges and schools and hospitals to accommodate our magnificent growth. The focus was on growth, the focus was on the future. California's demand government carry out its most important functions, build, invest, and protect. So a real sense of limited government will create the best schools by hiring the best teachers and allowing them to excel. 
Again, a sense of limited government. Hire the best and let them deliver and succeed. I love, the, I love the last two. Government can't abuse the taxpayer. Democracy means equality of opportunity. So these were all uh, quotes from one former California politician. Anybody want to take a guess at who that person was? <laughs> Pat Brown, yes, sir, Pat Brown. So I, you know, if somebody showed me th these quotes, I would have guessed, I would have guessed uh, Governor Reagan. But uh, a, a Democrat, Democratic Governor Pat Brown. Um, and these were not campaign speeches. These were all from his budget statements from the early and mid-1960s. And I think it does embrace a vision of there are limits to government. There are natural limits to government. Government was, must first do its most important functions, build and protect. It must respect the taxpayer. It must deliver excellence. And you know, I was a kid growing up in California in the 1960s and 1970s, so, and that was a wonderful time, I think, to be in California. Um, and policymakers, you know, Pat Brown and then state legislature and then local policymakers as well, you know, they didn't just talk a good game, they really delivered. So California was known as having the best K through 12 schools in the country, and the United States at that time was known as having the best schools in the world. So I was a beneficiary of those schools. During that period, the state expanded the University of California system, the state college system. It built roads and highways, some of which were supported by state dollars, but most, most of which was not, to support that 70 million population growth that we saw between 1940 and 1970. The California Water Project was done in the 1950s and was implemented in the 60s and 70s. California, for the most part, is a semi-desert climate. Uh, California Water Project brought water throughout the state. And what makes these accomplishments, I think, in my opinion, even more remarkable is that in the 1960s, half of the population was 24 years old or younger, meaning that about half the population delivered very little tax revenue to the state. So the state was able to make these investments at a time of real financial exigency. So that was the California that I knew as a kid growing up and that, and that many, of, many of you know. So what has happened since then? Well, that's what I call the tarnishing of the golden state. Now, it's not that we're not spending the money. Inflation-adjusted state per capita spending has increased by more than a factor of four since Pat Brown's day in the early 1960s. So more than a factor of four. Inflation-adjusted spending per person in the state. Taken together, state and local spending in California is now over 20% of state GDP. California is roughly the sixth largest economy in the world, about $2.5 trillion. State and local spending is over $500 billion today. Now, what are we getting for that spending? Well, um, and, and when I read this statistic, I just shook my head. You know, there's fewer miles of serviceable roads in California today than there were in the 1990s. Now, the definition of a serviceable road is one <laughs> in which neither the vehicle or the occupant will likely be damaged driving <laughs> on the road. So that's what the Society of Civil Engineers calls a, sur a serviceable road. And there's fewer miles of serviceable roads today in California than were in the 1990s. Um, we just went through several years of drought, um, so it really highlights the fact that there have been no new major water investments in the state since 
the California Water Project. And more broadly, the designers of the California Water Project back in 1956, they envisioned a much larger California. And they put together plans that were never fully realized by the state for budget reasons. So the California Water Project that was largely finished by Jerry Brown's first term was finished because California was unwilling to devote the resources to complete the water project that had been planned by the visionaries in the 1950s. The California schools that I had the pleasure of attending were number one in the country. Today they're 42nd. Still ahead of Mississippi, if that's any consolation to you. Um, the country was the best in the world for public education back in the day, and the United States now is about 38th to 39th in terms of teaching science and math, which we can measure consistently across countries. California is an expensive state in terms of taxes. We are among the top three in the country in terms of tax burden. That's not something you want to be at the top of. And California housing costs have skyrocketed because it's become so expensive to build housing in this state. Now, why did this occur? Well, in my opinion, it's because we shifted from what I would call growth-enhancing policies to growth-depressing policies. That shared, relatively nonpartisan vision of growth and limited government and a focus on excellence and public investments, you know, I think that's basically gone. And what has replaced it is an emergence of what I'll call uh, politically liberal, social, environmental pol uh, political coalition that I think has dominated state policies for, for a number of years. And that coalition has substantially changed budget and policy priorities and has done so in a much more political way than previous state governments. And what I mean by that is that the focus of state governments today is much more highlighted on constituents that in turn provide support for that coalition. And I'll talk about that in a few moments. And this shift in policies, some of which I just showed you, has substantially changed California, I think for the worse. It's depressed our growth and has changed, I think, without doubt, our quality of life. Now, this is not meant to be a partisan talk in any way, but I do think it's instructive to look at these two quotes, one from Pat Brown, which I'll just briefly repeat because you've seen it already, and one from Jerry Brown today, that really does highlight how vision has changed within California Democratic Party. And again, not to be partisan, but state government has been dominated by the Democratic Party on and off for, for, for many years. Okay, so again, Pat Brown says, we must invest to accommodate our magnificent growth. We can't abuse the taxpayer. That was Pat Brown in the 1960s. Jerry, his son today, says, so this is, this is Jerry Brown today, not from the 1970s. And Jerry Brown was talking, this is just a couple of years ago, when tax revenues were very, very high. Capital gains were very, very high. So when capital gains are high, tax revenues are high in California. And he was talking about higher tax revenues and what that means for the state. And he said, higher tax revenues let us combat global warming, income inequality, provide a higher minimum wage, and address social issues. And then just very recently, he said, I'm tired of those people complaining about taxes. They're freeloaders. 
So just think about those two, uh, those two very different statements for a moment. It not only illustrates a difference in priorities and policies, but it really illustrates a different vision for the basic function of government. So the Pat Brown quotes really highlight a vision of government that exists to protect and build infrastructure and support the private citizens of the state. I think the Jerry Brown quote says, his, says the vision of government is largely Jerry Brown's vision and the vision of a few others. It's not a vision that puts the taxpayer first. It's not a vision that says don't abuse the taxpayer. It's not a vision that says what's first and foremost protect and build. Let me tell you a little bit more detail about how state budget and policy priorities have changed. So when California went on that investment spree in the 50s and the 60s, about a quarter of the state budget was devoted to capital spending. That's how we built those roads and that school, water, and transportation infrastructure. Now it's about 4%. That doesn't even cover depreciation. The Society of Civil Engineers has come out and estimated that over $3 billion is required just to get K through 12 schools, public schools, in working order. And that's not, you know, that doesn't mean bringing in new computers and new technology. It means fixing the water, it means fixing the water fountains and making sure the windows close and the doors lock. So over $3 billion just to get K through 12 schools into adequate repair. So a moment ago I talked about serviceable roads. Well, you know, some of them aren't so serviceable because we uh, lose about $1,000 per year in terms of depreciation and damage to our cars by driving on subpar roads, about $1,000 on average per year because of bad roadways. And that number is between $2,200 and $2,400 per year for drivers in the San Francisco Bay Area and LA where roads are particularly bad and where also tax revenue, a lot of tax revenue is generated. 90% of, um, I'm sorry, that says Los Angeles, that should say California. That's the type of 90% of California water pipes are 50 years old or older. 50 years is typically the lifespan for a water pipe. We have been in drought for more years than I'd like to remember, yet we lose hundreds of millions of gallons of fresh water every year because these pipes are breaking. Overall, the civil engineers give California infrastructure a grade of D plus. I think they're being relatively charitable because one out of every six of our bridges in this state has been graded by the civil engineers as being structurally deficient. And all I can say is I just hope that the bridges that you drive on are not in this category, uh, but one out of six are. So at this point, I know you're, what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, where is the money going? Well, 70% of today's budget is in the categories of healthcare spending, pensions, welfare, and interest on the debt. So that's where the money's going. Now, to be fair, the fraction of the budget spent on these items has been increasing over time in virtually every state in the country, but not to the extent in California. So California is at 70%. Other states, uh, such as North Carolina, are, about, are at about 53%. Okay, so we spend a lot on those categories. And consequently, 
When Jerry Brown wants to fix the roads, he says we need more taxes to do that. And people complain, and he calls them freeloaders. Um, now, it's not just the way the budget's allocated that has impacted California, but other policies are damaging our state. And I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, one is in the area of schooling. Um, and it's hard to identify a more important investment, at least for the future of the state, than in public education. Um, California schools today are 42nd in the country, and the great majority of research that's been done about school outcomes points to two key problems about why our schooling outcomes have, have declined so much. And they are politically powerful teachers unions and a lack of school choice or competition across schools. Now, the California Teachers Association spends more on political contributions within California than any other single organization, and has done so for at least 15 years. So it is a very politically powerful uh, organization. And they sign teacher contracts with state and local governments. And there's really two big problems within the California Teachers Union. One is that union rules don't reward excellence in teaching. The best teachers are incredibly valuable in terms of the education they provide and broader teaching that they do with our kids. Um, but for the most part, there's no merit-based pay within union contracts. How do you get a high salary? Well, by having a lot of seniority and spending your summer vacation enrolling in school certification programs that, by the way, have zero correlation whatsoever with teaching outcomes and teaching excellence. And teachers get the, take the, to, you know, go, go for these three-week certification programs because they'll get a $3,000 salary increase. But even worse than that, unions protect poor teachers. There are many teachers that are very good and highly committed, but some aren't doing a good job. And it's incredibly difficult, it's incredibly difficult to dismiss a teacher for cause in California. The dismissal rate for cause in public K through 12 in California is 0.001% per year. 0.001% per year. And the reason is because dismissing a teacher for cause in California can take five years or more and will certainly take several hundred thousand dollars once you get into court. So schools simply don't try to even do it. My Harvard, um, I'm sorry, my, uh, my Hoover colleague Rick Hanischek has done a lot of research on the importance of good teachers and he finds that if California just removed, just removed the bottom 10% of those teachers in terms of teaching quality, and replace them with the average, then California can move from 37th, 38th in the world in terms of uh, uh, school quality to about fourth or fifth in the world. Okay, so these rules are incredibly costly, particularly to poor families who have very little opportunity other than, other than their neighborhood school because school choice is often not possible. Families with resources can say, okay, if I don't like my neighborhood school, I'll just, I'll just pay and have my kid go to private school. Well, that's not really something that's even possible in poor families. Um, moreover, 
98% of teaching budgets go to compensation. There's very little money left over for capital spending. I mean, they can't even keep the, the, the schools in working order. And there's very, very little support for highly gifted students. In fact, most schools don't even try. They don't even really have the resources to even try to support truly remarkable potential learners. Um, and that's very cost because we may be giving up on some future, on some future Bill Gates and some future Steve Jobs and some future Fred Smith, Fred Smith who made up FedEx. Um, and in fact, in terms of not even trying, I'll, ju I'll just share something with you from my own experience. Uh, I have a 10-year-old um, in public school. Last year in fourth grade, he and his classmates took a, uh, a California State uh, standardized test. And um, my, my son, is, he's pretty good in math. I don't think he's the second coming of Albert Einstein, but you know, he's pretty good in math. And we got the results, and he got a perfect score on math. Uh, and he, you know, he was thrilled, and my wife was thrilled, and you know, I gave him a hug and said, you know, great job. And then privately later, I told my wife, I said, you know, that's, this is just not good. He, they should not be getting perfect scores. And I looked in a little bit more closely, and in his fourth grade, there's you know, 75 kids, um, and eight kids got a perfect score. So over 10% of those kids, and it is a good public school. But that just goes to show that we're not demanding enough from our kids. Um, and consequently, they're not becoming as good as they, as they can be. Let me mention another aspect of policy I think is very damaging. Um, our penal system now takes up to 9% of the state budget, 9%, up from 3.5% uh, when Pat Brown was governor. And a big reason why the budget is up so much and why outcomes in terms of recidivism are so bad is the California Prison Guards Union. It's called CPOA, which is the California Peace Officers Association. Now, prison guards in California in the union, they receive pay that's about 75% higher than the national average. 75% higher than the national average. And not surprisingly, the cost of incarceration in the state of California is about 75% higher than the national average. And they engineer such high salaries through union contracts. Um, in particular through overtime pay, and our prisons are very crowded, so there's a very big demand for prison guard services. Overtime pay reaches $50,000. Uh, that's an old statistic from a few years ago, so I don't know I can find, so I imagine it's even more today. Uh, and accrued vacation. And accrued vacation can be passed on to top off pensions at 100% carryover rate. So you might say, you know, good work if you can get it. Um, and you know, there's sort of two ways to get high pay. You can either be really good at what you do and really, really productive, or you, know, you can be in a union and twist some arms. And um, there's no evidence that the California Prison Guards Association is particularly effective or particularly efficient, but their union is incredibly politically savvy. They make political contributions and support for politicians and positions that just do one thing, which is increase the demand for prison guard services. And so that's why every time there's a policy proposal or possible legislation that will reduce the demand for their services, they fight it tooth and nail. And they fight rehabilitation and retraining programs that would give inmates a chance at making it once they leave prison. They fight private prisons, which are not gonna pay that 75% wage premium. 
And they fight work programs for nonviolent offenders, where nonviolent offenders will leave the prison a day, go off, and work under supervision, then come back at night. All those, prison, all, all those programs they fight. And California used to have the best recidivism rate in the country, and now we have the worst recidiv recidivism rate in the country. And I think it's just, uh, no pun intended, it's just a crime that 77% of California crimes are committed by, by previous offenders. So um, for whatever reason, they're coming out of prison and they're committing more crimes. And that was not the case in California uh, back in the 1960s. So those, those are you know, union contracts filled with lots of goodies uh, that benefit a, a very small segment of our population in the state, the prison guards, but that do widespread damage to the rest of us. Now, I spoke a minute ago about the fact that we spend a lot, and therefore we have a high tax state. The Tax Foundation ranks California as the second worst in business taxes. You can probably guess New York is the only one ahead of us, and we are the third worst in the personal tax burden, um, and our 13.3% maximum tax rate is the highest in the United States. And actually, when I, you know, when I poured the, uh, when I poured the, um, the water into the coffee grinder and the coffee beans into um, the water canister, I was actually thinking just how egregious it was when the state took that 13.3% maximum rate that was supposed to be a temporary surcharge and, and, and made it permanent. Um, our top 1% pays 50% of state personal income taxes. The national average is about 38 and it's not just taxes. Um, California makes it very costly and very, very inefficient to run a business. There are a variety of rankings of you know, how business friendly or how easy it is to do business within a state. And California, I looked at several of them. California is between 46th to 50th in terms of business climate. I brought in one quote here from a Silicon Valley CEO, which is, I think, interesting because Silicon Valley is one, is one of the most politically liberal uh, regions within the state. And he said, it's expensive, it's hostile, and enviro regu environmental regulation is a huge drag on business, does more harm than good. Now, the Kauffman Foundation conducts a survey on how easy it is to open a business and grow a small business. California gets a grade of F on that one. Um, perhaps not surprisingly, and I'm sure you know this better than I do, California's just lost an enormous number of companies, big companies over the years. It's been estimated we've lost 10,000 businesses since 2005, and I've listed the names of some of the major companies who've, who've chosen to move their headquarters over the years elsewhere. Now, California's always been a state that's had a relatively generous safety net, but it's a safety net that doesn't work well. And what I mean by that is that California welfare programs tend to trap beneficiaries in dependency. It's not a safety net that moves people out at some point. It's a safety net that captures them. Now, we're home to 12% of the population, but one of three U.S. welfare recipients live in California. Okay, so we're overrepresented in terms of welfare beneficiaries by about a factor of three. Why is that? Well, California has largely rejected welfare reform. There are no to very, in, depends on the program, there are either no or very few work requirements for welfare, and they're relatively high benefits. So a single parent with two kids can obtain about $38,000 in benefits, including health care, 
And that's higher than almost all of Western and Northern Europe, which is known as the welfare state. Denmark is the only country that provides more benefits at about, not that much more, about 40,000 than we do in California. Now what I did was I calculated, I took out the federal tax tables and the state tax tables, and I calculated what income would be required to make this hypothetical individual roughly financially equal, okay? So they would have to pay tax, state taxes, federal taxes, and then they would have to find some childcare for their two kids. And it comes up to, conservatively, $70,000. So that's a tax rate of almost 100%. So our policies have evolved over time as to really punish work among the, among the lowest earners and really trap them in dependency. Um, and uh, I, think, I, think this is, I think this is just a crime. Uh, from my own personal experience, um, and this is not California, but just to give you an idea of how uh, beneficiaries view these things, um, a few years ago I was a visiting professor at Washington University in St. Louis, and I was living up by campus, and I was also advising the St. Louis Federal Reserve, which is downtown. So I would go there one day a week, I would ride the train, and one day I'm riding the train, and there are two young women sitting literally right next to me. Um, and one of them says, I got a promotion. And they said, that's great. And she said, you know, I did the calculations. I did the calculations. And I don't think I'm going to accept it because this is what happens to my food stamps. And this is what happens to my insurance payments. And this is what happens. And I'll actually be worse off if I take the promotion than if I don't. And again, I think, I think that is just uh, a crime that we do that to people. Um, it's ironic that we provide quite a bit in terms of benefits to those on welfare, but they don't live particularly well because California is so expensive in terms of housing. And ironically, the reason behind that are policies. So land use regulations <clears throat> that impact building costs drive up the cost of, of California housing. And this is, there's sort of a penalty of policies ranging from zoning, environmental rules, including the California Environmental Quality Act, um, that make development and permitting incredibly costly, often requiring what I would call development set aside. So this is what happens when a developer says, hey, I've got 20 acres, I'm gonna develop this into some residential and also multi-use construction. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. We won't give you a permit unless you set aside some of that land for low-income housing or some of that land for a park or some of that land for a green space. All of these policies drive up housing costs. Now, to give you an idea of just how much, in that 1940 to 1970 period, 17 million people came to California. California price premium, housing price premium, has always been about 35%. So it's always been a little bit more to live here. But that didn't change. It was 35% housing price premium in 1940 and was 35% in 1970. Since then, since these policies have gone into play, and a big part is the California Environmental Quality Act, the California housing price premium went from 35% to 160%. Three out of four Californians surveyed have seriously considered leaving the state because of housing costs. So, I'm going to conclude here in a couple minutes, but I hope that this information indicates, and I know I'm preaching to the choir here, that policy changes are needed. 
and how do we implement policy changes? Well, voters are going to have to demand that. So now this becomes as much of an economic issue and also becomes a political issue. So let me just say a little bit about political composition and how likely this can be. And I'm more hopeful on this than, than some. Now, within the state, 45% of voters are registered in the Democratic Party, 20%, 26% Republican. Most are independent. Now, within this group, 18% self-identify as being very liberal. Almost all of those voters are either in the San Francisco Bay Area, Silicon Valley, or parts of LA, typically West LA or Santa Monica. 57% identify as moderate or, or some form of conservative. And over 20% of those in the Democratic Party identify as conservative. So I look at those numbers and think, okay, these voters can make a difference. They're not particularly driven by ideology. They're not particularly wedded to a particular program within a political party. And in a second, I'll show you that they're not very happy about what's going on within the state. Now, an interesting component, I'll just do a quick segue here, an interesting component of California politics is that registration in the California Democratic Party has actually gone up, while nationally it's gone down. So nationally, in the 1960s, about half of voters were in the Democratic Party. Today, it's about a third. And Republican registration has also declined. Independent now is the big component. Now, in California, that's gone up, and that's all because, that's all because of California's rising Latino population. But within the Democratic Party, Latino voters are not the same as what you might think of as other California voters within the Democratic Party. They're much more conservative. When surveyed, they care about economy and jobs, school quality, crime, housing costs. That's their main concerns. Two-thirds of Latino voters oppose sanctuary cities. Latinos are much more connected to labor force than any other demographic. Their labor force participation rate is about five percentage points higher than the next closest. 86%, this is a surprising statistic, at least to me, 86% of California business startups now are by Latinos, including very successful startups in finance, media, high technology, and robotics. So, Yes, the Democratic Party in California is growing, but much of that growth is coming from relatively conservative voters who are demanding policies that, cre that create jobs. And these Latino entrepreneurs, they're facing that same F report card that the Kauffman Foundation gave to California. Um, they want it to be easier to start and grow business as well. So now let me just talk a second about voter dissatisfaction. So in surveys, 83% of voters view, uh, and these are parents, view California K through 12 education as problematic. 89% view school budgets as being poorly allocated. And parent surveys, particularly Latino, black, and Asian parents, they want civics classes back. Um, civics classes have been gone for the most part from schools for a long time. They want those back. They want better vocational training. They want better college prep all the things that I think any parent would want and that we here in this building want. Almost all voters are dissatisfied with state investments, so those days of Pat Brown and, and, and state policies that enhanced infrastructure, that's gone for a long time. Nearly everyone surveyed view state infrastructure is severely deficient. We feel the potholes. Nearly everyone believes the state has not invested enough in roads and highways. 
Many believe, I think everybody who is informed believes the state has not invested enough in water infrastructure, and virtually everyone is dissatisfied with housing costs. And many of those dissatisfied with housing costs understand policies play is creating some role. More broadly, surveys of voters show they care about growth. They care about quality of life. They don't necessarily care about the state's political agenda. So what do, what do voters care about? Economy, jobs, the tax burden, water and transportation infrastructure, the quality of K through 12 education, the cost of housing, and crime. Nowhere on that list of concerns do you see the state's political agenda of you know, inequality, and cultural issues, climate issues, um, environmental issues such as one of my favorites, the plastic bag ban. Um, sanctuary cities are all gender bathrooms. These are all issues that the state seems to care about a lot, but voters don't. Now, what's needed to get policy change? Well, in my view, there's really three steps to this. Voters have to get a little bit angry, and I think they are getting a little bit angry. Um, this made me uh, think back to the old movie Network, where uh, Peter Finch playing that newscaster says, I'm mad as hell, I'm not going to take it anymore. Well, voters have to get a little bit angry, like Peter Finch did back in Network. So that's, a, that's a picture of him for that movie. Um, and so I think they are. There is voter dissatisfaction with government-provided services housing, schools, infrastructure, and water. So yes, we can check that box off. There's dissatisfaction among voters with how the budget is spent. Yes, many voters, they don't necessarily know where the dollars are going, but what they do know is the dollars aren't going towards policies that they care about, such as infrastructure. So a yes there. And I think the third part, and this is somewhat more challenging, is that voters need to understand that existing policies are in fact depressing growth, is depressing growth, and that they hold politicians accountable. And I think this process is now starting. And in Hoover, we're contributing to this process through research and policy analysis and communicating these findings to a broader audience. So I'm doing work on state and local government. Uh, my colleagues Rick Hanischek and Caroline Hawksby are doing a lot of work on public education. Bill Whalen is doing a lot of research on state politics. Um, so we are doing what we can to move the needle here. And it's not going to be uh, one day we flip from a politically liberal state to a politically conservative state, but rather the future governor and future state legislatures are going to have to understand we have to change public school teacher union contracts. We need to introduce merit-based pay. This is what the voters want. We can't have prison guard contracts that pay 75% premium when we don't have money for retraining and rehabilitation programs. We have to have resources for water. We have to have resources for, for infrastructure. We have to confront the challenges in reallocating the budget. So it's more really around the margins than having some wholesale flip in terms of, uh, in terms of politics. Um, and what I've laid out for you this morning is really, I think, a perfect example of what former Hoover fellow Milton Friedman said. <clears throat> I think this is a great quote. When governments start doing things they shouldn't do, they stop doing things they should do. And I think <clears throat> Pat Brand had it right. Build, invest, and protect. That's what government's supposed to do. And they stopped doing that, 
at the same time as they start doing all those things they shouldn't do. So let me go here and pause and, uh, and, and take any questions you might have. podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.